morning. This morning, if you would, open to Ephesians 2. We'll get to it in a few, few minutes. Looking at Ephesians 2. This morning, as we uh, continue our series on the church, and we're, we're, we're going in no particular order, but uh, this morning we're lo- looking at the church as the family of God. The church is the family of God. Let me pray and then we'll begin. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this Lord's Day morning. Thank you for your grace um, shown to us. Thank you that we, we are members of the household of faith. Pray that you will guide us, guard us, direct us. Lord, in the truth, um, this morning and in preparation also for um, the service as your people come in from different parts of the county this morning, bring them safely, we pray, to sit under your word, worship together in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Last time we looked uh, at the church as uh, the guardian um, of the deposit. One of Paul's concerns in the uh, final uh, epistle that he wrote before he died was that uh, people would entrust his doctrine, that is the, the apostles' doctrine, the, the apostolic gospel, that they would pass it on, that Timothy would pass it on, and they would pass it on to faithful men. In 2 Timothy 2, verses 1 and 2, we looked at, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and what you have learned from me, in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Uh, those two verses we, we looked at um, develops what he said back in chapter 1, verses 13 and 14 of 1 Timothy, when he said, follow the pattern of sound words that you've heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. And again, the good deposit is the apostolic tradition which is, of course, the good news of, of Jesus Christ, that, that apostolic tradition that was the deposit. And that deposit at that time was becoming Scripture. Today it is the living Scripture, and that, therefore, is the deposit to be guarded. And as my wife and I are, are updating our family trust, this reminded me that uh, this deposit is entrusted uh, to, to the church. To, be, to remain faithful to the truth. It's a family trust, if you will, to be passed on. And, and part of being um, a faithful guardian and, and an authentic protector um, is to heed the caution given to the church. We looked at that last week also, and that is that spiritual laziness spawns false teaching. That's why Paul Paul tells Timothy and Titus to be examples in diligence. Examples in diligence. Rightly dividing the word of truth, teaching it faithfully, forsaking irreverent babble, all, 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 all heresy. 
So we, look at, we looked at a number of texts as being a model, and he told the Thessalonians in 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 6, We command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who's walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. They were already clear on what that tradition is. For you yourselves know you ought to imitate us because we were not idle when we were with you. This morning, with this idea of trust in mind, we change gears a bit um, from, from being the guardian of the glorious deposit handed down to us to, to recognize as recipients of it the family privileges that we acquire as Christians as that deposit asserts through, throughout the New Testament. And that is that the church is the family of God. So the, the, these are family matters. What we looked at last week, what we look at every week as regards to the church, uh, really are all family matters. And as the family of God, uh, we are to bear our Father's resemblance. We can't do that unless we're continually reminded of where we once were as compared to where we are now. And that's what Paul does here in Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 11 through 22. Therefore, remember, remember, that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you're no longer strangers and aliens, but are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. That is the fundamental lesson of the Christian life right there. From from being the guardian of the glorious deposit handed down, we were reminded that we do so because we're the very family of God. We're his household. Members of the household of faith. And this fundamental lesson ought to be reviewed um, by us as God's people um, over and over again through our our Christian lives. And that is, by nature, we read here, we were worse than we ever could have imagined. By nature, we were as bad off spiritually as legion was. The the, the man possessed by a legion of demons we looked at last week in Mark's Gospel 
We were as bad off as he was. By nature. But by grace, we're better off than we ever could have imagined. No less blessed than legion. You agree with that? That's what Paul says. So what Paul's providing is, is, a, is a then and now comparison. A before and after comparison. What we once were and would have been by nature as compared to what we have become not only individually but, but corporately in Christ by way of His grace. Before and after. Um, before and after photos are a means of, of advertising that we're all familiar with. And they serve to compare the ugliness of the before with the beauty of the after. You see these in the, uh, the workout world. You see these in the diet, nutrition world. You know, weight loss programs, before, after, and so on. That's the style of Paul's writing in Ephesians 2. That he's calling us to remember. This is what you were before Christ. Look back at chapter 2, verse 1. What were you? Dead. Compared to verse 4. But God, rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when you were dead, verse 5, made us alive. You were dead, now you're alive. You know, most evangelicals today believe that we were actually alive. We had some spiritual life in us before the Spirit gave us life, assuming that in salvation we first kindle up within us a desire for Jesus. We kindle up a desire, then we believe in Jesus, and then consequently the the Holy Spirit makes us new creatures. That's typical Arminian soteriology and that is that that faith ignites regeneration true or false according to this text you were dead god made you alive so the passage clearly teaches that's what we were we were born dead we have no desire to love god before regeneration maybe a god according to our own Making, but not this God. We cannot resurrect in ourselves a desire for God. It's impossible. So uh, apart from the Spirit's gracious initiative, we remain dead. You were dead. Some will argue that as human beings, we, we have a free will to make ourselves alive to God. But as fallen human beings, although we have no power, we, or we have power to choose, we have power to, to make certain decisions, no doubt. We have free will in, in, in that area. We can choose, make decisions, but we'll always choose when we're spiritually dead according to our fallen sinful nature. Always. We will willfully follow a different course. Text is clear. That is, that's contrary to the one true God. We will remain dead to the things of God. We'll have no desire for the things of God. You were dead, 
but God made you alive. That's the comparison. Out of the shoot. God being rich in mercy, verse 4, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up, verse 6, with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Verse 8, by grace you have been saved. Verse 9, so that no one may boast. And notice he applies those glorious principles, not only to individuals, but to the entire Ephesian community. He says, these are truths to be remembered. And he's moving to show how the privileges that we have as that family. That's what we're after this morning. The privileges we have as members of that household. Verse 11, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, you were, you were called the uncircumcision. The not people of God. <laughs> right? Verse 12, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That's the ugliness of before. That's the before photo. Compared to the beauty of the after. Verse 13, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Verse 19. So then you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. So there's four privileges pertaining to the beauty of the after. Brought from death to life, chapter 2, verse one, uh, 5. First thing Paul says, he refers to the Ephesian community as fellow citizens, right? Oftentimes we'll hear the president say, my fellow citizens. My fellow citizens. We, we, that is, we share the same kind of, of kingdom Together we share the same kingdom established by Christ when he came the first time. Therefore, we will inherit the consummation of that kingdom when he comes the second time. So here are the privileges you share as members. By Christ's work on the cross, by the blood of Christ, verse 13, through him, and by way of the Holy Spirit, verse 18, okay, as citizens, you now have access to the Father. This is what we share. The church shares these privileges together. It's not that one, one member of the body of Christ over here has them and one over here does not. We're gathered together this morning as the body of Christ. We share these privileges as, as, as citizens. You, th- th- this is a matter of you who were once not my people are now my people. Romans 9, verse 26. And in the very place where where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. 
So we, we, we share citizenship here. As God's people, he says, as my people who belong to me, you also belong to one another. This is citizenship, right? So, so you have a people to whom you belong. That's the first privilege we have. We're citizens. You belong, he says to the church of Ephesus, to one another. This is what we have to remember, amen, in the church. We belong to one another. I was going to tell you a story, but I, I'll tell you another time. Some, some guy, I, I will tell you. A guy came in here Thursday with his wife. I didn't meet him. He, he wanted to know, uh, see the church, because they're looking for a church, quote, end quote, looking for a church. My assistant dealt with them, and after they left, I, I said, that, would, that took quite a while. What would they want? He says, well, the guy, his motive seemed impure. He was starting to, to challenge us on why we don't use the King James only. I'm like, Melissa, when this happens, you need to march him into my office, and I'll deal with it. You don't need to be dealing with that. So anyway, they left. She gave him a copy of the ESV. They leave. Some guy pulls up Friday. I'm by myself. So I go to the door, let him in. He has a paperback King ESV in his hand and a stack of like 15 pages highlighted up and all this. And uh, he says, can I help you? He says, yeah, I came in the other day and I went home and you know looked up why you guys use the ESV and I just want to show you all the errors in it I'm like dude let me tell you something I'm not going to sit here and have you school me on what you went home and cut and pasted from the internet from these King James only lunatics okay so he wouldn't humble himself he goes I got all the answers right here I says I don't have time for this I said, what church do you go to? I don't go to church. I said, that's your first problem. I said, you profess Christ? Yes, and I asked him to reiterate the gospel, and his answer was correct. I said, then you need to be part of a body somewhere. You need to get in and sit under the word and lead your wife to sit under the word, zip your lip, open your ears, and start listening. Because you're a citizen of the community, and your gifts are not for you, They're for one another. You belong to the body of Christ if you're in Christ. And let me tell you this. Your gift is not to go from church to church, because this I have a sense this is what he does, to tell churches and pastors they're wrong because they don't read out of the King James Version. Who, Who do you think you are? We're citizens who belong to one another. Amen? And our job, according to giftedness, is to be together to serve one another as citizens. We're fellow citizens. That's what Paul says. You have a people to whom you belong. That's a privilege. Why would you want to isolate yourself from that and become a troublemaker? I don't know how these people find us. It happens more often than you think. Things like that, not just that. That was the first time I came in contact with that here. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's... Uh, King, right, you're right. 
the King James is very poetic. We don't speak in English like that. I mean, the, the, the ESV is considered to probably be the most word-for-word accurate of, of the Greek, of the original. You know, so, you know, his argument was you lose some of the, 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 the poetic flow. I says, we're after, we're after content, right? So that's basically it. You know, there's a whole book written on that. Well, there's more than one, but there's one very popular one by James White. James White. The King James Only Controversy. Very interesting. You're a citizen. This is the blessing. So we ought not to forsake that. Amen? Privilege number one. Grace transforms isolation and separation. Okay, that is, Paul says, alienation. As citizens, we share the same place and we share the same people, fellow citizens. So you have a people to whom you belong. That's the first privilege. So this destroys the individualism we looked at a couple weeks ago that that characterizes much of the contemporary uh, American evangelical community. That it's just me and Jesus. Just I go to worship and close my eyes to be in a quarter. This is mine and Jesus' time. No, this is our time. Amen? Amen? the body of Christ. And they reduce Christianity to personal faith. So you isolate yourself. You sit home like this guy and and look for arguments to go combat the citizens of the community to whom you really belong to and ought to be part of. Secondly, in addition to the privilege of citizenship, He says, look, you're more than citizens. Verse 19, with the saints, is grace transforms us into members also of a household, the household of God. Now back in chapter 1, verse 5, we read, he predestined us, look at that, he predestined us for adoption. For adoption. Through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. That means that we do not belong by nature to his household. We belong to the household of God by grace. We're adopted in. We're not, as people often say, all God's children. Right? In a creative sense, yes. But not in this sense. Because naturally we are at, what? Enmity with God, at war with God. Naturally, by nature, we're at war with God. By grace, we have been granted peace. So it's according to his grace that we're adopted in to this household. We're fellow federal citizens. You have a people to whom you belong. And belonging to one another, we belong to God. We're in the same household. And with adoption comes inheritance. Look back at Ephesians 1. Verse 11, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. A great inheritance is access to Almighty God. Beautiful, isn't it? Before you were aliens, now you're citizens. For through him, back to chapter 2, verse 18. 
For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. We're brought into, we're adopted into a family to whom we belong together. Fellow citizens, a people to whom we belong. A household, brothers and sisters, adopted in, we are family. God sent his son into the world. God sent his son into our life of sin in our desperate need to be saved, to bring us in, so that we be not left as orphans. What did Jesus say to his disciples, uh, what is it, chapter 14 of John, his last night with them? I will not leave you as orphans. I will not leave you as orphans. I mean, this is, this is the grand picture of the New Testament. This is actually the paramount picture of the New Testament. It's the dominant theme of the New Covenant, that we who are in Christ are family. We are family, as the song goes. The church is family. We're brothers. We're sisters in Christ. Kingdom citizens. Family siblings. Beautiful. Before you were lost, before you were alienated, dead, alive, before, after. Verse 18, for through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of of the household of God. There it is. Citizens, people to whom you belong, members of the same family. Thirdly, the household of which we're members, the home in which we we dwell, is eternally secure. This is the promise. So as citizens of people to whom you belong, you're part of a household. That's the household of Almighty God. And that house, that home in which you dwell has foundations. Foundations are very, very important. Amen? Jesus in Matthew 7 speaks of two homes, two kinds of houses. They're all built out of the same stuff. They look identical. But when the storm of judgment comes, one gets swept away and floats down the river. But the other stands. Why does it stand? Because it's built on a solid rock. Its foundation is secure. And here... This household, its foundations provide the stability and security that we need as we dwell within it. And these foundations go deep. Notice verse 20. That household is built on the foundation of the apostles, the prophets. And once you get down through those, you get to the cornerstone and it's Jesus Christ himself. Holds it all together. They go deep. Apostles, prophets, to Christ, the cornerstone. He's the solid foundation. This is where we find stability. This is where we find security. This is where we find a sense of belonging. Together we stand on the foundation. 
foundation is Jesus Christ. So there's, there's a change of atmosphere from alienation here to familial relations in a household that's secure. Household of faith. So it's from separation, verse 12, what you were by nature, to reconciliation, verse 16, what you are by grace. So the church is community, a people to whom we belong, we're fellow citizens, very important, a family with whom we live, inside of a household whose foundations are deep and wide. Can't be penetrated. cornerstone is Jesus. He's the head of the body. Amen? We're the body. He's the head. We are His church. And this body continues to grow. Notice, fourthly, it grows in worship. Because she is a living structure. Notice, living structure in Christ, joined together. We're a people structure. These are the privileges we have. Verses 21 and 22. In whom, okay, Christ's cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for who? For who? For God. A dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So we were by nature dead, separated, alienated, strangers who have been by grace alone, made alive, brought near by the blood of Christ, given peace and access to the living God. Amazing. From strangers, from being alienated to becoming fellow citizens with the saints, members of this glorious household that's being fabricated. So if you think of yourself as a block, it's being chipped, chiseled, placed, right? Formed, being formed together, stones fitted together, joined together into the very dwelling place of God. So sanctification can be painful, amen? Painful. It was painful for me to have to deal with that guy who, okay, if he's my brother in Christ, and I didn't go into all of our conversation, he has some very convoluted ideas, some strange ideas about the church. So in one sense, it's sad He doesn't get this. So this is fresh in my mind, so I shared some of these things. (laughs) Citizenship, the household. You have gifts. You belong to a people if you're in Christ. Don't go knocking on doors looking for a fight. Enfold yourself there where there's safety and security and growth. So when I thought about the chiseling and the chipping that painful experience of sanctification and how I was to deal with this guy. Because if you, if you come up to me and you're combative, like if you're looking for a fight, my weakness is to put up my dukes. <laughs> Spiritually speaking, of course. 
So, you know, the Lord uses all that to sanctify everyone involved, including myself. But you see this? Chip, chisel, form together to the, into the dwelling place of God. In other words, the picture here, it's not a picture of a country cottage near a calm little pond, right? Or a, a little single country village or a country cottage um, in the mountain somewhere with, with a trickling stream for the sake of retreat. It's just me and Jesus. It's not that. You know, it a place for me to dwell alone, meditate alone. Is there, now, are there times for that? Of course. The picture here is not a cottage. The Lord is creating a, a downtown temple to shine His glory through. Right? We're trying to emphasize again in this study the importance of the church, the importance of her gathering together, the purpose of her being together, not isolating ourselves from her. 1 Peter 2.4 As you come to Him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, here it is, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. 1 Peter 2.4 Beautiful, isn't it? And again, as you get chipped and chiseled, he's fitting you, right? Sometimes it hurts, right? So we don't want to hurt one another. There's enough pain in sanctification. Amen. So together as God's people, his church, that is his temple, the place he dwells, we gather then, not for a trendy man-centered show, right? But for God-centered worship. That's what we're going to do today. God-centered worship. So together, that then manifests an atmosphere of transcendence. It's what the late theologian Edmund Clowney used to call doxological evangelism. Doxological evangelism. Doxology is an expression of praise. And he called it doxological evangelism because... This should be a place of transcendence today. So if a stranger, that is someone from the outside, who's not part of the community, walks in, they'll see this is not a reflection of what I just walked out of. A trendy, man-centered show. There's something transcendent about this. Look at these people, what they're doing together. A citizens who belong to one another who are in the same household, the household of God, worshiping the God. They have access to God. They might not understand this, but they see they have access to God. They seem to be communing with God together. There's no shtick here, no show. There's something transcendent. As an unbeliever walks in, to whom God very well may be working in, in drawing that person to himself, they will experience the, the, the distinctiveness of God 
in the order of service, in the music, in the message, in the praise, in the prayer. Amen? That's why we do what we do to the best of our ability with that which God has given us. And then they will discover they're not the guest of honor. God is. I spoke at a men's conference yesterday in Hemet. And one of the things I said was that, you know, there's a problem with the church today, and, and it's so man-centered, they call themselves seeker-sensitive. And I think I mentioned to you guys, if you want to be really seeker-sensitive, now if we were to answer that question, are we seeker-sensitive? Yes, with respect to John 4. When Jesus said to the woman at the well, the time is here, the time is now, and God is seeking men and women to worship Him in spirit and truth. So we're seeking to honor Him because God is seeking men and women to worship Him in spirit and truth. We're coming together to worship in spirit and truth for Him. That's true seeker-sensitive worship. He's the guest of honor. Not those who come through the door. We, we want to welcome them, amen? But they're not the guest of honor. He is. So the point is, you know, like Clowney's doxological evangelism, they'll see something that's so different, they'll go, wow, this, this is not about me. This is about him. These are people who are citizens. These people are a community. This is a household. Because a God-centered family, as we gather together, there's something about the weightiness of his presence that, that does what to us? Bows us down. We come together to bow down. And at the same time, we realize that just the blessing of his presence, that in and of ourselves, we're inadequate. Right? Unworthy, inadequate to even praise him Yet, because we've been brought in from being strangers to being actual citizens, orphans, to, to a family adopted in, we then, by faith, can lift up our eyes and lift up our hands and lift up our hearts to the Redeemer. Amen? That's transcendent worship, because we are the family of God. Therefore... When an outsider comes in, it's no different than what Paul said to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 24. Listen to this. If an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He's called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so, falling on his face... He will worship God and declare that God is really among you. The church. The family of God. Amen? Amen.